do good, do, do what's most loving. And I think that's ultimately what our stories will show in the end. Jordan Reeves, they, she, he, is queer, trans, and non-binary. Jordan grew up in Hueytown, Alabama, and in 2010 moved to New York City, where they helped start TED Ed, viewed nearly 2 billion times online. In 2016, Jordan started Video Out to educate and equip the world to better relate to and advocate for the LGBTQ community. Jordan has produced over 50 events around the United States, managed countless volunteers, and interviewed 400 LGBTQ plus people. Jordan has worked with major brands like Hulu, Verizon, P&G, and AARP to create LGBTQ plus inclusive content. In 2020, Jordan started Video Out Entertainment to tell stories that are often missing in the canon of television and film. An ethical vegan, Jordan is also Dolly Parton's biggest fan. They live in Los Angeles. Okay, well, we are here today on the Gravity Podcast with Jordan Reeves. Jordan, welcome. It's nice to have you here. Thanks so much. I'm really excited to be here. Good. So let's dive right in. Let's start at um, the early childhood stage of your life. Share with me your earliest memories, what you know, childhood was like for you as a kid, your family, where you're from, all that kind of important fun stuff. Yeah, sure. You know, I always start by saying that the great work of my childhood was to construct a version of myself that I felt would be pleasing to people around me. I'm from Hueytown, Alabama, and it's kind of exactly what it sounds like. It's a, a small to medium-sized small town. It's not like a Mayberry. You didn't know everybody, but you kind of did in the sense that it was a, a very singular approach to life. I didn't really know anyone who had world-changing aspirations or the trajectory there was, and this is a, a very big generalization. So anyone from Hueytown listening, like I'm with you, I get it. But the predominant trajectory of life there was you would graduate high school, you would marry, you would have kids and you would work your um, survival job to pay your bills. And if you were lucky, you would have two-bedroom house with enough space for your kids to run around in the yard. And that was that was it. And that really didn't fit my expectations. We'll get into that later. But I had a, a really fun childhood. I had three older brothers. My uh, mom and dad are still married. Um, they were endlessly loving and supportive of everything that I was as a kid. You know, they they wanted me to have fun and explore and just, you know, play with Barbies and play with G.I. Joes. And there was really no sort of limits to the, the ways they let me be a child. And I can remember my mom like checking me out of school when I was in elementary school and taking me on adventures just so that she would have enough time to spend with each child individually. So I can't express enough how loving and nurturing my parents were. And I, you know, my dad went to my fifth grade class trip. It was like an overnight camp and he was a chaperone on that trip. So both of them were involved and just like wanted to be there. I also spent an inordinate amount of time at church. I went to a Southern Baptist church. Both of my parents were ministers in that church. Um, they weren't pastors. They weren't the head of the church, but um, my mom was a children's church director my dad was a deacon and the, the security guard for the church. So he would like stay after the services and lock up. And, you know, often I would do that with him. And I knew the, the alarm code to the church, which was like the golden code. So we could like sneak into the church later and like climb up in the steeple if we wanted to. So it was like a really, my, my family was my church. It was an extension of my nuclear family. And it was conservative as conservative gets. You know, there was really no progressive leaning in any part of my biological family or my church family. So growing up, I really thought that I was going to have to follow that trajectory, which was so common in Hueytown, where I would meet 
the girl of my dreams. I would fall in love and have kids. But I knew at a very, very young age that that wasn't going to be my path. Um, I remember my oldest brother, who's now a pastor, but at the time was, you know, just like any other kid, had a stash of adult magazines in his bedroom. And like any younger brother, I was like trying to snoop around and find cool things in my older brother's room. So I stumbled upon this stash and I can remember flipping through the magazine and being sort of like mesmerized because I knew like your bathing suit areas were not something that was supposed to be public. But what I found most interesting as a young kid, and I don't know that this was sexual, I'm not a psychologist, who knows, but I knew that I had affinity to people that looked like me. So I actually cut out the pictures of the other people who I assume were assigned male at birth. And I cut those pictures out and I, I glued them into this folder, which I had on my bookcase in my bedroom for years, all through elementary, middle, and high school. It's funny, when I moved out to go to college, I found this folder and I was like, whoa, I can't believe this folder full of like pasted pictures from a porno magazine is still in my bedroom. Anyway, that, that sort of interest, that affinity didn't match what my family wanted or what my church family wanted. It, was, it didn't fit the, the Adam and Eve model that I learned in church. Mm-hmm. And I also learned very quickly that anybody that didn't fit that model, didn't abide by those parameters, was an outcast, was a sinner, and was brainwashed, was hellbound, was broken. So when I started talking about this, I said the great work of my childhood was to construct a version of myself that was pleasing to others. What I mean by that is that I knew very early who I was, but that wasn't the person that I could be around everyone in my life. So I started building this this fake version of me where I pretended to have crushes on girls, where I, you know, talked the talk. I know the Bible to this day better than most people in my life, most people that I know. Like I can just, I can quote a lot of scripture. I don't know the lyrics to popular songs, but I can quote scripture, all right? And I, I led worship at church. I, you know, I would sort of stand in for pastors if they had to go on vacation or whatever. I would I would go preach at church. So I was like very involved in the church. And I thought that if I if I delved deep, if I hid behind the banner of faith, that I wouldn't have to deal with who I am. And that all came to head when I turned 18. Mm-hmm. Let so me I, pause you just I don't know if we would have paused there. Yeah, let me let me pause you there for a second. Um because you know you've said some really profound stuff and I really appreciate the sharing and the way that you've articulated it. And I want to just dive in with you a little bit on it before we go too far forward. You know, I'm struck, I guess, by some really interesting things that, you know, you describe your parents as unconditionally loving and that you have this, you know, experience um, within the family unit that feels loving, yet there's a real necessity to not really be yourself. Um, And I don't know if that's more church-driven. You said both by your church family and by your family. So it actually doesn't feel as unconditional as maybe, you know, it it sounded to me, but I want to hear from you. And then, you know, I have a lot of questions, but I, I also would love to hear you elaborate on the knowing, that, that you had a knowing of who you really were. And I'm wondering, like, how did you know that? You know, was, was it just a felt sense? Was it a, a embodied thing? You know, I, I, I would think that, and, and I know this in my own way, that sometimes you can really bury the, the, the knowing so much so that you forget, you know, and I, and I could elaborate on kind of my own version of that. And, and I can really relate. I think this is why we do this podcast. I think a lot of people can relate just to the idea of creating a self that will be liked. And 
and accepted and embraced and maybe more. That I think is a very relatable experience, which, you know, some people never unpack or in some cases, you know, you can gain awareness and still, you know, get stuck there. So anyway, I, I'm really curious because for starters, you know, for you to speak a little bit more about, you know, this kind of loving family unit. And then also, you know, kind of how did you know that you were different, different than what they yeah. wanted you to be? So it has taken me years to understand that there is a huge difference between love and acceptance. And I have no doubt that my parents to this day love me. And I define love as an, an action that manifests in affection and concern and a selfless desire for another's well-being. And I think that that can can look different for many different people. But given the, the hard choice of saving their own life or saving mine, I know that my parents would, without hesitation, save mine. And I think that that is a huge testament to the kind of love that they have for me. I also understand the complexity of their situation because I used to be indoctrinated in the same faith tradition that they are in. I know that it's really hard to choose between something you believe with every fiber of your being and something that you've been conditioned to feel is sinful and abnormal and deserving of hell. So my parents, I think, struggle on a daily basis to accept me and love me in a way that the world might consider to be unconditional and remain true to their faith's tradition. It's almost impossible. So I think the best way for me to do it personally, the way for me to process my relationship with my parents, which is, again, come with years of, of learning, is to compartmentalize it. And I have to put up boundaries. So, you know, I know that my parents love me, but they also don't accept me. I'm queer, trans, non-binary. And those things don't mean a lot to my parents. What they mean is that, oh, my son is homosexual and he's going to go to hell if he acts on that. So there's a, a lot to unpack there because I, I'm, you know, I'm fine if they call me son, but a lot of trans people don't maintain that um, affinity to those labels. Queer, trans, and non-binary does not mean the same thing as homosexual. So there's a lot that my parents could do to broaden their acceptance of me, but that does not mean that my parents don't love me. So I think in childhood, it was way easier for me to, to have an open relationship with my parents because I, I wasn't acting on my sexuality or my gender identity. I was sort of still, still discovering who I was. I didn't have a language to, to talk about it. And I think in any child's life, you know, when you have a crush or you want to like kiss someone or whatever it is, you feel a bit sheepish about that. I think the disadvantage that queer and trans people have is that there's layers of oppression, there's layers of expectation, there's layers of, of stigma that rests upon those identities, which we can sort of confuse as, as a parent not loving you. I really think if we're going to solve this issue holistically and, and systematically, that compartmentalization is the way to go. Because I was ready to, um, to end my relationship with my parents altogether, which was mind-blowing for a lot of people because I was so close to them for so long um, and talked about them like they were, you know, just angels. And, um, and they are in their own way. So if I'm going to have any influence in my parents' life, I have to say, yep, they're not at a place. They're at a place of very limited exposure to my queer experience. So if I don't remain in their lives, they're going to have no queer exposure. But if I compartmentalize it and say, okay, my parents love me, I know that, and they want what's best for me. So I'm going to say that 
That's true, but also understand that they have this limited exposure. And by remaining in their lives, if I have the emotional capacity to do it, then I can carry them on this journey along with me to a place of expanded understanding of a queer and trans experience. If I don't stay there, again, that's not going to happen for them. They're not seeking out this information themselves. Also, I think it's really important to note that anybody who has this kind of experience or any marginalized person, the burden of education does not rest on you. It rests on the person who's privileged, who's powerful, who has the capacity, not the marginalized person. So it would be perfectly justifiable and healthy and totally okay for me to say like, I can't do this. I can't educate my parents because consider all the other pressures that are against marginalized folks, not just familial relationships, but the, the disadvantages that you face in society. I mean, let's take a, a, a trans woman of color, for instance. Uh, the average life expectancy for a black trans woman is 35 years old. That one statistic alone should say that a black trans woman is facing a lot of pressures that most people do not face. So to layer on top of that pressure and expectation to educate your whole family to accept you for who you are is unrealistic. So if you're not in a place to do that, don't worry about it. Like you can, you should do whatever you need to do. And I'm doing what I need to do to make sure that I'm safe and healthy and happy. But I'm finally to a place where I understand the difference between love and acceptance. I can compartmentalize. And I do feel now that I'm emotionally available enough to maintain a relationship with the expectation that my parents still don't accept me. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Well, let me just hop in there for a second. Um, I think this is really important uh, guidance for people to hear. I think that... You know, your specific experience and queer, trans, non-binary, it's very specific. And I think what you're saying is also very much applicable to a lot of different groups, not even just those that are marginalized. I think it's very um, true in a family dynamic in general that there's... uh, a tendency to put so much weight into the family dynamic that it does really oftentimes limit people from living fully however they want to live, living authentically, living fully expressed. I mean, even simply, you know, people that feel pressures to go down certain career paths or live in certain places, right? This is a, I think this is a pretty uh, heavy societal generational conditioning, right? Now, certainly when you start to get into the marginalized, it's it's amplified, intensified, and, and oftentimes way harder, you know, just frankly, I, I think that's probably very true, but, you know, it's all relative. And I think the issue is still very much the same. And I've kind of seen people go a number of different routes with this. It is not as uncommon as you think to, uh, or people might think, to totally separate from family, right? And it's it's probably even more common to just not live authentically because that seems easier. I do think what's less common, and and I don't know if it's, um, you know, compartmentalizing or just the acceptance piece. But learning to accept your family as they are, to have boundaries and still be in relationship, to you know, uh, not want them to change, you know, or sure you might want them to, but not be attached to the outcome that they're going to change is I think pretty rare and, and really healthy. You know, and so I'm I'm curious, you know, to back up a little bit um, and learn how you got there. What what was the journey? I mean, you started to mention a little bit about being 18 and and you know this kind of coming to a head a bit. I'd love to hear more about that 
before we start talking about you know you today and being you know in this you know compartmentalized place with your family, I, I love to kind of back up here a little bit more. Um, actually, first, uh, if you could just kind of describe a little bit more about that knowing, and then you know you could maybe elaborate on kind of what happens. Yeah, for sure. I think that all ties in together really nicely. Um, so going back to the knowing, I, I think, you know, when I was brought home from the hospital, I was swaddled in a blue blanket because I was assigned male at birth. Um, and this is, as you know, the common experience for every child. We're sort of, it, it, it's incredible to me or unbelievable to me that we would reduce 7 billion people, their lived experience into two categories, male or female. If we look back before sort of a Euro-Christian colonized experience in, in North America, the indigenous people that lived on this land expressed or celebrated or experienced or identified or labeled, whatever you want to say, up to 500 different genders. So we've done a huge disservice. We've, we've really taken away an, an experience of humanity that I think is really important to, to reclaim and to re-explore. And um, in my case, and I think largely that's because of religion. And we the vestiges of that it is now traditional family values and conservatism and, and whatever. But so I was brought home in this blue blanket. And while I was given sort of the freedom to explore, you know, I would wear my mom's shoes or it was funny when I put on makeup, like all of these things were allowed. The, the expectation was that it came down to real decisions that I would follow that Adam and Eve model. So in my, I, I mean, I can remember the nursery songs that I learned at church, you know, about the Bible stories and, you know, Noah and uh, Noah's wife and this story of procreation that's carried throughout scripture was embedded so deeply in my, my mind. It was like a deep-seated thing. It was an indoctrination. So what was happening in my heart and, and in my like individual secret thoughts didn't mesh necessarily with what was being set up for me externally. Now, I used to ask the question, I, I've interviewed hundreds of queer people across the country, and I used to ask the question all the time, when did you first know that you were LGBTQ? And one day it hit me, like, that's like asking an apple, when did you first know you were an apple? Like, you don't really think about it. You don't really ever just know. It's not one day you wake up and say like, oh, I realize now I'm queer. What happens in society today is that you realize that you don't fit into the boxes that everyone else is identifying for you. So it's not when did I realize I was queer because I've always just been me. It's I realized that the world wasn't ready to accept me. I realized that my magic was too great for this world and in my individual circumstance. So again, I don't think that the, the onus is on the person to decide when they knew who they were. It's on all of us now to identify when are we doing a disservice to people, especially marginalized folks trying to fit them into boxes that make sense for the majority or for the powerful. If we say everybody should, should live this cisgender heterosexual experience, where does that come from? And, and how, what, where are those messages reinforced? It's a lot better today than it was 30 years ago when I was sort of coming into this realization. You know, you never saw a gay couple or a queer couple or for a large part, even a, an interracial couple in advertisements or on TV or whatever. I mean, not I remember- in the South, that, especially, right? Not in the South, especially, yeah. yeah. But, but let me just kind of dig into that a little bit with you because I want to learn, you know, I'm, I might not, 
No, either. So, you know, you can maybe help me here. I really, I, I really understand what you're saying about, you know, the Apple being an Apple. And yet, you know, I hear a lot of people who, who say at least that they, you know, uh, they didn't come out until later. Maybe they didn't know. They didn't know. Now, are you saying that um, society conditions you to fit into the box so early on that it's possible people don't really even know who they are? Or is it always that the apple is hiding as something else because of society? You know, is it that you, you always know? From a young age, because because that to me feels a little bit like it doesn't allow for one of the five hundred options to be available, right? That like that 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 process could take some time to really know. I don't know. Maybe you could just help explain that a little bit more. Yeah, for sure. I mean, I think it's definitely an individual experience. Yeah. I've I've also talked to people who are like. I didn't realize that I was queer until I was an adult. And then one day it just makes sense. Uh Right, 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 right. Yeah, okay. I do think, however, that goes back to this sort of, I think another important thing to your point is that it's not a spectrum between man and woman. It's not a linear, gender is not a linear experience. I think of it more as a cloud. And you might be any droplet inside You know, if you imagine a cloud full of water droplets and it's amorphous, it's nonlinear. So gender can be anything you want it to be for you. It is an experience that's as individual as your fingerprint. So it's not like you have to pick a slot between man and woman that you fit on. Like there are things that extend in every direction outside of just man and woman. And that's why I think In our society, we've limited, we've conditioned people to feel like they have to fit into one of those boxes or at least something in between. And that's why I think, you know, we have so many people, it might be less prominent than what it used to be, but we'll have people who, you know, follow that traditional model, that American dream model where they get married, they have kids. And then, you know, once they've been married for 15 or 20 years, they're like, geez, this isn't really working for me. I realize now that I'm trans and I'm, I'm actually a, a trans lesbian woman. So I've got to be that for myself. Whereas what if starting very early on, we, instead of having the princess aisle and the GI Joe aisle, instead of like only having advertisements that are, that highlight one experience, what if everything looked as diverse as possible And we left room for everybody just to be who they are. I know if those options were available to me as a kid, it would be like being in a candy shop. I would have been like, oh, I want to try that on. Oh, I want to see what that feels like. Oh, that's like really exciting. Let me, and it's also, you don't have to declare anything. Your experience isn't written in stone. So I have come out 20 times in my life. But, and, and I'm still learning who I am, as I hope everybody is. So I don't, just because you say one thing at one point in your life doesn't mean that can't shift or change. But we have to be a society that allows that exploration to happen in order, in order for us to be a society where people live authentically. Does, it, does that answer it? It does. It does. And, and I actually, I really, again, I come back to this is a, a societal conditioning that you could apply to pretty much all of humanity. You know, that there are people who just feel like they are uh, expected to get married and have kids or are expected to get a job and do X, Y, and Z, you know, that any sort of societal expectation, tradition, norm has such conditioning from an early age that, you know, 
it often does kind of force people unconsciously most of the time to go down a path that might not really be the path they really want to go down. They just might not even feel like there's any other option. So yeah, I, I think certainly, you know, uh, as it pertains again to the marginalized, that gets even harder, um, but it makes sense. So thank you for sharing that. Tell me a little bit about, you know, what happens to you? Talk about, you know, this 18-year-old this self. Um, ha- what happens? Yeah, so I am in middle school and I'm starting to be bullied ruthlessly. And, you know, people are calling me all the things that you would suspect. And I, I was more effeminate. Uh, you know, sometimes I wasn't, but a lot of times I was. And, you know, I, I liked Lisa Frank. I liked colorful things. I liked the color pink. I, you know, I was, and I was also a very, I was an empath. I'm still an empath. So I like cared very deeply. I was a nurturer. I didn't like sports. So, you know, I was, you know, exactly the the person that I was. You can imagine you knew that person in your school. So now be on the other side of that, where when you walk down the hallway, you are afraid to see three or four people because you know, when you do, those people are going to knock your books out of your hand, or they're going to like say that um, you're going to die after school because you're gay. You know, those are the kinds of, of things that I was hearing all the time. So I went to the guidance counselor and the guidance counselor basically says to me, oh, grow up, like you're going to be fine. Plus you have nothing to worry about. You're too young to have a sexual preference. So anything that they say, it, it shouldn't matter to you at this point. So I started having suicidal thoughts and I was like, this is too tough. Let me just end it all. In middle school, which no middle schooler, nobody ever, but especially not a kid, should ever have to go through that. That carried through to high school, and I became a shell of myself. I wore a hoodie every day. You know, I wore like pants. I I wanted to cover up as much as I could of myself. And that was also an emotional cover up, too. Like when I laughed, I would put my hand over my mouth. Because I didn't want anybody to see any part of me. I was self-conscious about everything. I wasn't loud. I hardly ever talked. Except when I felt really safe. So I had a very close-knit group of friends that were lovely. But even among them, I was very guarded. So at 18, all of this just has compounded. And I'm feeling like I want to kill myself. I, I have two options. I'm like, okay, I can either like, pour myself into the church and just like ignore the fact that I am queer or I can once and for all admit it to myself and do something about it and see what happens. I was petrified. If anybody found out, my life would be over. My family would forsake me. My church friends would disown me. I would have to stop teaching Sunday school. I would, you know, all of these things that were my life would essentially disappear. So I logged on anonymously to Craigslist and I met up with a guy back when you could do personal ads on Craigslist. And it was dangerous. You know, I went to a stranger's house with the expectation that I was coming over for a a sexual experience. And I had no idea who this person was. So I show up and they invite me into their home And I see on their walls and on their bookshelves, the same things that were in my home. There was like crosses as decoration and there were worship books on the bookshelf and there were like seven different translations of the Bible. So like, it felt like me and this person were on the same page. We both knew what was happening. So after that experience, it was horrible by the way, um, because I didn't know anything. No one had taken the time to like... LGBTQ sex education does not exist. So I injured myself. It was painful and layered on top of all of the bullying and the the self-consciousness and the the fact that I already wanted to kill myself. Having this experience that went so terribly wrong, I was like, 
well, what the heck? Like, who am I? If this isn't who I am, like, what's happening? Um, so I'm driving back. Um, I actually don't know where I'm driving. And I'm, I start weeping as I'm driving. I, I drove this like pickup truck and I pull off on, had to pull off on the side of the interstate because I'm heaving for breath. Um, I call my mentor. And at the time, that was the, the youth pastor at the church that I had attended growing up. And I say to my mentor, I've done something that God will never forgive. So there's no point in living any longer. And my mentor said, listen, if you've ever had a relationship with God, you're going to be just fine. So why don't you go out to the field? And the field was this 20-acre plot of land that the church had bought. They were going to build a new building. Anyway, I went out to this field and he said, throw rocks at God. Just get it all out. Like, tell him how you're feeling. So I went out and I start throwing rocks at God. And I didn't know why. I Like, it, that seemed really silly to me that I would, you know, this peon on earth would be throwing rocks at God, who at that time I believed to be this ultimate superior being. And as I'm throwing rocks at God, I mean, my shoulder is hurting. I'm throwing rocks so long. And I have no more tears left in my eyes. I like my, I'm exhausted and I just collapse and I start laughing. I think that maybe it was my body's defense mechanism. I start laughing. And for the very first time, I say two things to myself. Um, I say them out loud, but I'm in the middle of the forest in rural Alabama. So no one's there to hear. But I say, I'm a homosexual the only word I had for it. And I say, and I don't believe in God. And that was a, a huge moment for me. Like I, then I started laughing at the fact that I was throwing rocks at something that I didn't really think was there. Now that was, that's unlocked something for me. One, it allowed me to accept myself, but since I had been so indoctrinated, the, these convictions, this belief system that I had, it's all I knew. My concept of reality was based in conservative Christian thought. So for me to say I don't believe in God, it was a, the beginning of an undoing that took years. I mean, that, that happened when I was 18. It wasn't until 25 that I stopped going to church because I felt even though I, I didn't really believe, I still felt like something bad would happen if I said it out loud or I told other people. I felt like God still might be there to smite me down, even though I did, really didn't believe that he existed. That's the power of indoctrination. So going back to my parents, imagining that they've been in this tradition now for going on 70 years, it, I, I can empathize. I can say like, well, it, it makes sense that you're having a really difficult time. So I don't blame you for the way that you believe as much as I blame these, blame these systems that condition mm-hmm. us, that indoctrinate us, that give us a very easy pathway to oppression. So tell um, me- And you're a victim just like I was. Yeah, so tell me, you know, how, how did you then break out of that, the indoctrination, the kind of conditioning to- um, stop, you know, fearing God, something you no longer believed in. Um, what happens? You know, how, how do you move forward to present day? You know, how did you do it? What did you do? So I said that the great work of my childhood was to construct a version of myself that pleased other people. The great work of my adulthood is to unpick those parts that I've constructed so that the most authentic version of me can shine through. It took a lot of work and a lot of therapy. And, you know, I, I've actually never been to um, an actual therapist, but I've talked to a lot of therapists. I've talked to a lot of friends, a lot of counseling sessions, and it's actually on my to-do list to, to find a therapist. I finally have insurance that will pay for my therapy. So, um, and it's something that I, I desperately need, even as I'm, I've, I'm now in a place where I really love myself. But I think it, it started in that moment when I was 18. Again, it was that great unraveling. 
And then I went to college. I was still going to church. I was still playing the part. I was still preaching. And I would still say things from the pulpit that were like, homosexuality is a sin and we must fight against this sin. And part of me still believed that I could conquer who I was as if it needed to be conquered. And it wasn't until I, I went to college I, and I was studying biology. I thought I was going to be a doctor. And, but this is really, that was a, a part of that version of myself that I constructed. I was like, ooh, people would really love it if I became a doctor. And, you know, that's something that's, that um, anybody, everybody respects doctors. So I thought that's the path I'm going to go down. So I studied four years. My last semester, and this, if divine intervention exists, this is what it was. So uh, I always say, thank you, Dolly Parton, for making me fail this class. I, in, in my last semester, um, I kept failing a class. And I got tutors. Um, it was my third time to take this class. I just couldn't pass it. It was calculus too. To this day, I hate math. Well, um, you and me both. <laughs> <laughs> so halfway through this class, I, or on the last day, I could drop it. I was like, you know what? I'm dropping this class. And I went to the, um, to the theater department. So I was like, this is where the queer people are. And I signed up. I stayed an additional two years. And I met Cliff Simon. Cliff was the very first person. I always say Cliff saved my life. So I was sitting in class in an intro design class, um, a requirement for a theater major. And Cliff shared his story openly about being queer. Cliff grew, grew up in Brooklyn um, in a Jewish home, had a very similar experience as I did growing up in a conservative Christian home and shared over the course of his, you know, 50-year life at that time, what his journey was. And I was like, oh my gosh, this is the very first time I've ever heard anyone talk about being queer openly and proudly. And I was um, 23 at this time. I went into Cliff's office after that class and I said, I have to tell you something. I'm homosexual. And Cliff was like, you know, very patient, very loving. And, um, it wasn't that easy. I was in Cliff's office for like 45 minutes, beating around the bush. And finally, Cliff said, Jordan, just say it. Like Cliff knew what I was trying to do. And that was the very first time I ever told anybody out loud. Um, so I felt alive. I felt this huge thing lift off of me, this oppression, this like the power that my indoctrination had, all of those things broke away just by using my voice to name my truth. And over the course of the next two years, I was teaching science at a science museum in Birmingham, Alabama. And I was also working a retail job, as most theater majors do. And um, I, you know, was lost. I didn't know what I wanted to do, where I wanted to go. And Cliff came to me one day and he said, Jordan, you, you need to move. You need to get out of here. You can always come back if you want to. This is your home, whatever. But you need to go somewhere where you can see past the end of your own nose. Find yourself. And that was in 2010. And I moved to New York. And I lived in New York for 10 years. And um, I feel like that's where I experienced my childhood, my adolescence. And that's where I became an adult. So I really grew up in that decade I spent in New York. Everything changed for me there. Yeah. And, and so tell me, tell me more about that. First of all, it's wonderful. I love the story. Um, I feel that these are like really, I don't know. I don't want to minimize the pain, um, but it's a heartwarming story, you know, for me to hear somebody who, you know, can, can you know persevere through that? Who can really fight that fight and come out um, on the other end um, as you? I mean, you know that is why we are doing this podcast is so that others can just take comfort in 
this experience of being human. And maybe there are some listening that will take comfort in your exact experience, but I do just believe, you know, your um, story is one that, you know, I certainly can just relate to and learn from and, and I'm enjoying hearing. Um, so tell me, you know, uh, as you go to New York, you know, what, what happens and, and, you know, kind of take us to present day. For sure. Yeah. Thanks. Um, and I'll also just say like, I'm, I really believe in the power of stories. Um, just like Cliff's story saved my life. Mm -hmm. You know, there's, there may be an opportunity for someone to hear a story that's shared on this podcast that touches them in a way, and you'll never know the ripple effect of, of these narratives. So thank you for doing what you do. This is really, really cool. I don't know how much information is too much information for your audience, but... Um, Not, there, there really isn't such a thing as far as I'm concerned. So, you know, cool. go for it. <laughs> <laughs> so I think a, a stark contrast from that experience that I had when I was 18. And, you know, in Alabama, I, I was experiencing, experimenting with my sexuality. And I was able to like um, hook up with people anonymously and really figure out what it meant to be attracted to, to people who looked like me. And it, by the way, I use that phrase because as a queer, I, I don't identify as a gay male because I'm not only attracted to other people who identify as gay male. Some people are trans or non-binary and I'm attracted to them too. It, it really falls down to the individual. And um, so, but at the time I, I felt like I was more attracted to people who looked like me. So um, anyway, I was able to do that in Alabama. But one time I, I hooked up randomly with this guy who ran a Toyota dealership and he came over and he had a wedding ring on. And this goes back to what we were saying earlier that a lot of people are just sort of caught in this, this circumstance because they've been conditioned. So they do what they have to do in order to survive. So it wasn't until years later where I, that, that hit me. I was like, oh my God, that guy had a wedding ring on. So, and who knows what that means? Um, could have been a decoy, could have been married to another man. Who right. knows? Right. Um, but Anyway, I, I moved to New York and the, the contrast is for the very first time, I go out on the town as myself. I'm going out as Jordan. And my very first weekend there, I'm staying in a friend's apartment who was out of town. And I go to this, this bar called The Cock in the East Village. And it's this, the seediest bar you can imagine. There's a long hallway to get into the bar. And the reason that hallway was there for Great years. Great name, by the way. Right, exactly. Yeah, their logo is a picture of a big rooster. Um, so this long hallway, it was there because if there was a police raid, the person sitting at the front door would flick the lights and people would know to like pull your pants up, brush your nose off, whatever you got to do. Like, don't get caught by the police who are coming in. So I went to this bar and mind you, I had never been to a, a gay bar like this. We had like two gay bars in Birmingham and they were very conservative comparatively. Um, so I'm go I go into the cock and it's like wild. And um, by the, the end of that night, um, I'd spent the entire $300 that I had to my name. And um, I was just buying people drinks. I was like, I was like, this is what it means to be gay. And um, I hooked up with the, one of the go-go dancers at the bar. And um, the next day I was like, holy Moses, I, what have I done? I have no money. I have nothing. But I was on cloud nine because it was like, I, I just did something that was so out of the ordinary. It was away from my experience. This is exactly what was my intention in moving away from everything I'd known. It was to explore and to experience something different. And that sort of pattern of behavior continued for probably too long. It's not sustainable. I'm 99.9% .9 sober now. And really, you know, I partied a lot. I drank a lot. And I think that was a reaction to the, the person that I was, the expectations that were placed on me. When I got to New York, it was like, 
everything was free. I could do whatever I wanted. I didn't have to answer to anyone. I didn't know anyone. I could just do whatever I wanted to do. I had a lot of fun. So for my first five or so years in New York, I was just like, you know, a, a spoiled little a brat, I guess, exploring my way around. Um, I was nice. Everybody liked me. I had a good time. But um, I, I think if I could go back and do it differently, I would have been a little more level-headed in my approach. So one day I, I did sort of come to my senses and I said, wow, you can't do this anymore. You got to like buckle down and figure out how to be help, how to like make a difference. And don't forget you're you're here living this way because you weren't able to do this where you come from. So I never forgot Hueytown. And I was like, okay, what can we do? How can I help people who are still feeling oppressed, who are still lonely, who are still hurting? Um, maybe even people who are experiencing violence or suicide attempts. And that's when I um, I I'd started working for for a, um, for Ted and. I was in a really cool place at a really cool time. And I learned a lot about digital media and how the power of these stories placed on a, a platform could reach millions, if not billions of people around the world. And since a story had saved my life, I said, oh, well, why don't we like record LGBTQ stories and put them online and share them with the world? So I started a nonprofit called Video Out. and that has not only given me a way to serve the community and to, to help queer people, especially in small towns and rural areas, but it's also allowed me to learn more about myself. By hearing the experiences of others, I've learned more about who I am. Um, and it's helped me see that, oh, I'm, I'm queer, trans, non-binary. I'm not a gay man, which is sort of what I always thought I was. Um, it was the only language I had. You can't name something if you don't know how. You can't talk about it if you don't have the language to talk about it. So through hearing these stories, I was one, able to, to figure out how to best serve the community, but also how to be the most authentic version of myself. So that, that really brings us to today. I'm, as we said, I'm still, I have a contentious relationship with my parents in that, you know, we're, we're amicable. We, we respect one another, like we don't ever yell or it's not that kind of relationship, but we do have, we very rarely talk these days. Uh, I've talked to my mom two times in the past year, which is the longest I've ever gone without talking to her. And um, a lot of it has to do with that compartmentalization. It's like, you know, we can love each other from a distance. And I, I have to do that because I know it's not healthy for me to continuously engage in a conversation where I'm told I'm not real or that I'm broken or that I'm hellbound. And it, for me, it's more like I don't even believe that any of that is true anymore. Now I, it doesn't hold the power over me that it once did. But for me now, I, I can see the correlation between a belief system that's oppressive and the way that it actually does affect me. So people who hold those viewpoints are more likely um, to vote against my interests in a voting booth. You know, for instance, there are 250 different pieces of anti-LGBTQ legislation in state legislatures today. Eight of them have already been signed into law. There are 10 more on governor's desks across the country, which would make, if those 10 are signed, it would make this year the most anti-LGBTQ year in history. More laws on the books than ever. So there's got to be a connection to the way people are feeling in their homes, in their, their family relationships, to the way that they are voting in the voting booth. So I have to say to my parents, like, we, we have to have these difficult conversations. We have to talk about these things in order for us to like come to a place where the respect is now carried over in the way that you participate in society. Yeah, yeah, Jordan. Very, very interesting. I think, you know, you're sharing uh, a really powerful story and I appreciate how you've um, learned to emphasize and value the power of stories um, and the, the, the healing that that can um, lead to. 
um, and and dedicating your your life, um, you know, which is really kind of how I see it, you know, to to using your life, your experience to serve other people, you know, through the power of story is one that I certainly feel uh, is important. And you know, the the interesting thing around your um, parents and kind of the current status, it, look, these are complex dynamics. I don't think there's a answer, you know, that works for everybody for anything, especially this, but I I think it's hard. It's very hard because you're you're kind of in a situation that doesn't feel like there's uh, a real ideal outcome, you know, regardless. I mean, who wouldn't want their parents to accept them, right? It's it's nice that they love you, but but to not be accepted to have your parents so convicted in their own belief system that they literally think yours is leading you to hell is a very hard thing for you to accept and and so i think you're uh, you called it you know compartmentalizing you know i i think it's boundaries um, you know, I think you're doing what's really hard, but maybe necessary. I think it might be the right thing. And I don't think this is something that gets talked about enough, that sometimes it is the right thing, the best thing, the healthiest thing to really remove people from your life, you know, for, you know, to, to some extent, maybe completely, um, if they're just not able at all to coexist with you in a respectful way. And I don't say that to kind of like, you know, give everybody the green light to tell their parents to fuck off and never talk to them again. Cause you know, I do believe even in your parents' case, and I hope this doesn't, you know, uh, uh, offend you at all, but I really believe my belief system is that people are doing the best they can. And that I'd like to see your parents do better. <laughs> and I think they're capable of better, but for some reason, they're not doing it. And um, that must mean they're so stuck in their belief system. And listen, I, you know, maybe I'm wrong. Maybe my belief system's wrong. Maybe they're right. Maybe they do have it all figured out and God is going to punish all the sinners you know, and then I'm going to hell too, you know, but, but I don't really believe that that is not, and I'd actually believe in God, um, you know, and I didn't for a long time, but I do. And I believe God is a loving, fully embracing, accepting energy that is actually you and me and everybody. And that is how we're born and meant to be, but we get away from it because of the conditioning. Anyway, I'm probably rambling. I just am trying to tell you that uh, I I appreciate you. I appreciate you sharing your story. I appreciate what you're doing. I think it's courageous and I think it's right. And I think it's actually really, truly helping uh, others and, and that, all of it is a part of, and, and again, I don't know what your current belief system is, but I, I believe this is a part of a divine architecture, an intelligence. Call it the universe, call it energy, call it God, call it whatever you call it. I believe there is a rhyme and reason to your life and that sometimes we have to experience what actually feels like hell. You know, what, what, what the only thing, you know, that, that resembles hell here is what you experienced in your life until you started to experience life as you. And so um, sometimes you've got to go through hell to get to your true purpose. And that just kind of reflecting back to you what I see and what I heard today and just gratitude for, for, for all of that. Thanks so much. I, that's beautiful. I love that. Yeah. I, I, I feel like we're pretty aligned on our, our spiritual journey or our, our system of beliefs. And, and I, I take it one step further and say that 
it's not just that God is you and me, but God is also the animals. So like, that's why I'm a, a, um, an ethical vegan, you know, like we're, look at what we're doing to animals. God is also nature. Look how we're destroying the planet. Like, I think there's a calling for us not only to be good to each other, but to be good to everyone, to, to everything, to, to the world and all the people in it. And if, if we can all rally behind that, what's the harm in it? You can believe however you want to believe, but just do good. Do, do what's most loving. And I think that's ultimately what our stories will show in the end. So we look back in 200 years, 300 years, 1,000 years from now, we'll say like, oh, we were so silly back then that we were still fighting over not loving each other, um, not loving the planet. So I'm, I'm hopeful that that future exists. I am too. And I'm more hopeful after, you know, knowing people like you and I agree with you. It, it is everything, um, all things. So Jordan, thank you. Thank you for taking the time. Thank you for being you and sharing yourself authentically uh, on this podcast and in your life and in the world. Uh, I, I sincerely appreciate it. Appreciate you. It was a pleasure to be here. I really enjoyed it. Thanks so much for the opportunity. Thanks for listening to the Gravity Podcast. Please be sure to subscribe, leave us a review, and follow me on Instagram at Brett Kaufman on Twitter at bkaufman125 and subscribe to our YouTube channel by searching for The Gravity Podcast with Brett Kaufman. And please send me a DM with any guests or topics that you'd like to hear on future episodes.